Hey, welcome to the podcast of C3 Los Angeles. I'm Jake Sweetman, and together with my wife, Nicole, we lead this church. We're glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're tuning in from, that you are encouraged and strengthened by this word. Here's today's message. We're in week two of our Christmas series today called Everything with Nothing. Come with me to the book of Matthew, chapter one, and we're going to read verses 18 to 25. It says that this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. That was an inconvenient fact for Joseph. And because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means God saves or God's salvation. Now all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The prophet being spoken about here is a man named Isaiah. He was an Old Testament Jewish prophet and he prophesied that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they'll call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, because all of that's being spoken to him in a dream while he's sleeping, when he woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. The title of the message today is this. It's not a sacrifice. It's salvation. We're going to be talking about Joseph, the man who became the legal father of Jesus and his role in the Christmas story. I believe last week we talked about Mary. Today we're going to talk about Joseph. Next week we're going to take a deep dive into Jesus. But in order to do Joseph some justice, we do in fact have to begin today with Jesus. And we need to talk about the theological context surrounding the birth of Jesus. You see, for the next few weeks as we are in this series, we're going to spend time exploring and rejoicing over the wonder of the gospel. The gospel which is made possible because, this is why the gospel is possible, please catch this, the gospel is possible because of the central theological truth that springs from Christmas. And that truth is the incarnation. The word incarnate literally means in flesh. And it is about the miraculous, mind-bending event of God, the God of the universe, becoming a man. The incarnation means that in Jesus Christ, we have one who is both at one time fully God and fully human. The incarnation is that God has forever joined himself to the humanity of those who receive him. And in joining himself to us, he has accomplished our rescue and our redemption. Here's a definition that we'll put up on the screen of what is incarnation. It is the fact that God, without ever ceasing to be God, so when, when Jesus came and inserted himself into human history, he did not stop being God. What he did is he actually became what he created while still maintaining his godness. Why? So that he could reconcile us to himself. Philippians chapter 2, which is one of the earliest Christian confessions, you can find it in your New Testament. The Apostle Paul writes that Jesus, who is God, made himself nothing. 
he became a servant of all. The God of the heavens and the earth made himself a fetus. And then an infant and a child and a man. He humbled himself for our sake to the point of death on a cross so that you and I could be saved and set free from the slavery of our sin. Just like our series title states, he did everything with nothing. So it's not an overstatement to say then that all Christian truth hinges on the glorious truth of the incarnation. I want to say that again because if you're a Christian, you need to understand that everything you believe as a Christian hinges on the one truth that God became a man and inserted himself into our story. Christians have always believed that God became incarnate for the sake of our salvation. And this is the truth that the earliest Christians took great pains to communicate clearly. John, who was one of the earliest followers of Jesus, writes in his gospel account, chapter 1 and verse 14, that the word, capital W, speaking of Jesus, he became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He goes on in verse 18, says, No one's ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. We're getting a picture here of the Trinity. He has made him known. This is what Jesus Christ has done. He has made the one God known. Not known of, not known about. Jesus Christ has made God known. Not in the sense that he told us about God, but because he is God in flesh who was in our midst. And the implications of that truth, the incarnation, for the good news, what we call the gospel, of Jesus Christ, those implications are not just essential to the Christian faith. They're not just essential for you to confess as a Christian. They are also at the same time completely and totally breathtaking. The implications of the incarnation, they stir the heart like nothing else can. For starters, salvation is only possible for any person when that person comes into relational, intimate knowledge of God personally. You can only be saved by knowing God. And since God is the transcendent being who created everything and exists above and apart from everything, that means that he can only be known if he wants to make himself known. You cannot know God by your rational powers. You cannot think your way into the heavenly realm. You can't know God by your sensory powers, by your five senses. You might be able to feel around in the dark a little bit and deduce certain things about God or maybe know that there is a God. But if you want to know him intimately, then you need him to reveal himself to you. And that's what he's done in Jesus Christ. He's made himself known, not just known of, not just known about, but known personally, relationally, and intimately for every single person who comes to him. You see, salvation only comes by true and personal knowledge of God, and that kind of knowledge only is found in Jesus Christ, and that means that salvation only comes by Jesus Christ. And that is what makes the good news so good. Because we can join with Matthew in saying that Jesus is not just a man, but he is Emmanuel, he is God with us. And because he's God with us, that means that God in Jesus Christ 
has given us nothing less than himself for the sake of our salvation. Now, I want you to think about what it would mean if Jesus Christ was not the God-man. If he was not fully God and, and fully human, it would mean that all of the good gifts that come along with your salvation wouldn't actually be all that good. All of the things like love and holiness and abundant life, if they have not been given to us in Jesus Christ, then they would just be gifts that we would be just as prone to pollute and ruin like we have every other gift that God has given to us. They'd be the theological equivalent of an Amazon package in the mail. And we'd muck it up. We'd be like the three-year-old on Christmas who breaks the toy 60 seconds after opening it. But because Jesus Christ is the arrival of God into humanity, that means that the love and holiness and life that he gives are in fact the arrival of those things in him as he has known them for eternity in relation to the Father and the Holy Spirit. You see, the good news is not just that God showed us love. It's that God invited us into his love that he shares amongst his triune self. The good news is not just that God has declared you legally holy by the blood of Jesus. No, the good news is that our very humanity has been joined to God the Son who is holiness personified and therefore we share in his very holiness. The good news is not just that God gives us things that amount to an abundant life. As though the gospel was nothing more than the accumulation of more stuff or the achievement of more goals. No, the gospel is that by being joined to Jesus, we are joined to the life of God himself. A life which springs eternally. And that's why Jesus called that life simply abundant. Always abundant perpetually existing as plenty and more than enough. This is good news. Not that you and I have been given gifts from God, but that we have been given God. Rather than giving life as a gift like he did to Adam, Jesus Christ came as the one who is the life of God. And who took on the life of man. So that in him God and man, heaven and earth, may be permanently reconciled. You see, where mankind brought ruin to life in Adam, God has swallowed up ruin with life eternally in Jesus Christ. He has joined himself to us living, dying, rising again as a man so that any person joins themselves to him then all that Jesus has and all that Jesus has accomplished is mediated to that person. You say, well, how do I join myself to him? Well, you do it by faith in the Son of God. What does faith look like? Faith looks like following the example of how he joined himself to us. In other words, faith looks like a willingness for you and I to also become nothing. That means humbly handing our lives over to him, which like in all real relationships is something that is genuine and is eventually proven by the costs that we are willing to incur. 
See, here's the thing that can't get lost on us is that God did not become a man merely in the categorical or ontological sense. It was not enough for him simply to add humanity to his divinity while still maintaining his place in heaven. No, no, no. He became fully human. And then it says he dwelt among us in our midst. That means that he experienced the full gamut of the human experience. He knows the struggle that comes both with temptation to sin and the trials of life. As it regards temptation to sin, the Bible says that he is tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, because he was perfectly obedient to the Father. As it regards trials, he came as a baby born to humble, poverty-stricken parents. He was raised in a backwater town in ancient Palestine called Nazareth. As even one of his own disciples said before this disciple decided to follow him, before he met Jesus, he said, can anything good come from Nazareth? But it wasn't just those who were outside of Nazareth that were prone to, re to reject Jesus. Even those from within Nazareth would be prone to reject Jesus for all of the circumstances surrounding Mary's pregnancy with Jesus made Jesus the object of lifelong suspicion and scorn of being the supposed product of unfaithfulness from Mary to Joseph. Now it'd be one thing to be born in those circumstances if your intention was merely to live a quiet and understated life and to do your best to keep out of trouble and keep to yourself. Jesus, though, went around claiming to be God. He claimed to be the arrival of the heavenly kingdom into the earth. And that means that Jesus faced a kind of rejection more spiteful and violent than any of us could ever fathom. He was conspired against, mocked, ridiculed, wrongly accused, betrayed by his closest friends, spat upon, beaten, whipped, and eventually affixed to a Roman cross with a metal spike through his feet and two through his hands. And on that cross, he paid the penalty for the sins of the world. The gospel is that God came as a man and God died as a man so that God's just judgment for man's sin could be fulfilled. And so that man's perfect faithfulness to God could be achieved. So that in that one act, God both brilliantly judged and justified humanity all at the same time. And then three days later, God got up as a man still, but a different man, a resurrected man, so that every man, woman, and child who joins themselves by the Holy Spirit in faith is united with him in his death and united with him in his resurrection. His life becomes our righteousness. His death becomes our justification. And his resurrection becomes our eternal life. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it applies to every single one of you who are in this room. It applies to your co-workers, your neighbors, your family members and friends. All the people who aren't in this room yet but will be in this room one day receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. It goes for them as well. It's not just a good sermon. It's the Bible. Look at Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3. For you, speaking of you, you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You exist in relationship with the Trinity. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I, I've been crucified with Christ. I was on that cross with him. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 
The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who, pay attention to the tense, who loved me. Not just loves. Paul's got something very specific in mind here. He, he loved me. When did he love me? When he gave himself for me. Paul makes the cosmically amazing claim that God was on that cross. And while he was on that cross, he was loving you. Now you can hear Paul's invitation to live that crucified life. Jesus is a bit more gangster. He makes it more explicit. In Matthew 16, verses 24 to 25, here's the invitation. Whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to join themselves to me, it's so easy. Just deny yourself. They've got to take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. Now, where people get hung up is that they hear the invitation of losing your life in order to save it. And they think it sounds like sacrifice. No, friends, this is salvation. Everybody who receives the invitation discovers exactly that. They discover what Joseph discovered and what Mary discovered, what the church has discovered throughout the ages, that life is found in Christ alone. And the only way to take up the life of Christ is in faith to lay down yours. You see, your choice today is to take God at his word. And finally discover the great hope of your soul. Or to keep falling victim to all of the dead ends that the human existence is apart from God. You say, well, how do I take the step of faith? Well, just as Christ accomplished everything by becoming nothing in more than just the categorical sense, so also it is with us. Our lives become truly glorious, not because we take on the label of having died with Christ. Now, our lives become glorious because we embrace the reality of what it is to be truly living, which is dying to self and living for God. And this is not a sacrifice. This is salvation. And that brings us to Joseph. Joseph learned of Mary's pregnancy during a stage in their relationship called the betrothal. It's a little bit like our engagement today, except it's more formal. Betrothal is entered into by contract. And that period of time usually lasts for about a year. And at the end of that year, they have a big celebration. The Jewish people, they knew how to celebrate weddings. I mean, they would party for seven days. At the end of that celebration, then the couple would come together physically and they would consummate their marriage. So there's three stages to Jewish relationship. There's betrothal, there's contract, there's celebration, and there's consummation. Joseph found out about Mary's pregnancy with Jesus during the betrothal period. So before they were really married. Doesn't say how he found out. Presumably Mary told him, which would be a very uncomfortable conversation to have to have. And Joseph is basically given a choice. Will he believe Mary's wild story or will he not? And at first, because he's sane, he chooses not. And every man in here would choose the same thing at first as well. But Joseph is a merciful man. 
And so he wants to end the marriage quietly, end the relationship quietly, because he doesn't want to add any additional shame onto Mary, whose life, by the way, would now be effectively over now that there's going to be a rumor started that she has fallen pregnant, presumably because she's had sex out of wedlock with a man other than her betrothed. And as Joseph was considering these things, the Bible says, an angel appeared to him in a dream. So he took a nap. Always a good idea when you've got a lot to consider. Yeah. Just sleep on it. He takes a nap and an angel appears to him in a dream. And he confirms that Mary's story is true. She is pregnant with the Son of God by the Holy Spirit. His name is Emmanuel. His name is Jesus. He's bringing salvation for God's people. And Joseph was to marry Mary and care for Jesus as his own son. Joseph wakes up and Joseph obeys. He took Mary as his wife. He raised Jesus as his own. He had other children with Mary who would be the half-siblings of Jesus. And Joseph's life effectively, think about it, now revolves completely around Jesus. I mean in every sense. You see, so much of Jesus' life is predetermined. Where Jesus would be born was prophesied. Where Jesus would be from was prophesied. What Jesus would have to suffer was prophesied. And so Joseph, for as long as he lived, was choosing to be on the path with Jesus. In other words, Joseph chose to become nothing in order to participate in the everything that God was working through the Son. But it wasn't a sacrifice. It was salvation. For just like all Christians after Joseph, Joseph became a recipient of the life of God, which he was so privileged to steward. Now, we might be tempted to think that Joseph's obedience and giving his life over to God to that degree would have been quite easy since he had an angelic visitation. Some of us would like to think that if an angel would just appear to us and tell us what to do, we would obey. No problem. The reality is, though, is that the implications of Joseph's choice to obey, those implications lasted a really long time after the glow of the angelic visitation had faded. And I think that those implications, they speak a bit to you and I today. There's three things that I see. I'll cover them quite quickly. Firstly, Joseph's obedience to God it brought about a price that he would have to pay and a price that he would have to pay publicly. You see, pregnancy doesn't come with the luxury of privacy. Especially not a scandalous one in a small town. God did not wait until after Joseph and Mary's marriage was consummated to then place himself miraculously into the womb of Mary. That would then afford them the benefit of people assuming that the child was theirs. Why would God do that? That's too easy. Well, for starters, this is a prophecy of the virgin conceiving needs to be fulfilled. Secondarily, though, no one would ever believe that Jesus was the word made flesh. If it didn't happen to the virgin, they would just assume that the child was Joseph's child. And so this means that Joseph had to bear the lifelong stigma of raising a child not his own. Even today, for someone to marry a woman who has been judged to have fallen pregnant as a result of unfaithfulness to you, that would turn a few funny looks at you. 
back then infinitely more so. And so what we have in Joseph's choice is we have a real life example of what it means to submit our lives to God. It comes with a cost that is felt every day and in everyday life. Most especially because people will often wonder why you live for him when you supposedly could easily live for yourself with much less difficulty. Years later, after Jesus was born and lived and died and rose again, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to churches in Galatia. And he said in that letter, he said, I bear in my body the marks, the scars of Jesus Christ. What he was alluding to is that because of how much he'd been physically persecuted, his, his, body, his body was a visible sign of his obedience to Jesus. That word mark is, is the Greek word stigmata. That's where we get our English word stigma. Stigma is like a sign of disgrace. And Joseph, or Paul was saying, I've been disgraced and you can see it on my body. And Joseph had his own stigmata. His wasn't physically visible like Paul's was, but the stigma was there all the same. Bearing the stigma of staying with a woman who was supposedly unfaithful to you, raising a son who was not your own. And this would have had real world implications for Joseph. I mean, in a culture like that, that would have affected his ability to make friends, his ability to get work. And Joseph took that stigma upon himself. But it wasn't a sacrifice. It was salvation. Because by choosing to stay with Mary, he was choosing to walk out God's plans for his life. A plan that made him a participant in God's plan for humanity. In other words, by choosing to stay with Mary, Joseph's life went from small and being about himself to cosmically large because it was about God and others. And that's the invitation for every one of us in this room. You can either live for you and your goals and your dreams and your life will be perpetually little. Or you can choose to live for God and for the sake of the world and your life will be infinitely greater than what you ever dreamt it could be. You see, some of you right now, you can sense that God is inviting you to follow him. Maybe for the first time, Maybe there's some of you here today where you could not really say that your life belongs to God. You are not like a, like a branch grafted into the vine deriving all of your value and identity and meaning and life from that vine. And God is inviting you to join your life to his through Jesus Christ. Maybe others of you, you sense in this stage of your life that God is inviting you to follow him much more closely. COVID got the best of you. The last few years got the best of you. Ideologies maybe got the best of you and you drifted and God is saying, come back. And you're aware of the cost, just like Joseph. You're rehearsing the cost, just like Joseph. You're considering these things, just like Joseph. And the clarion call from the Holy Spirit could not be clearer. Whatever the cost is, in following him, pay it. Take it on board. And if you do, it won't be sacrifice. It will be salvation. True meaning and value, true life, it's not in the things that you want to preserve. It's not in the stuff that you want to keep going, the things that you want to hold to yourself because you feel like it's all you really have. 
How could the things of life which you animate, the things which you assign value and meaning, how could those things ever be the things from which you derive your own meaning and value? That'd be like the paintbrush deriving its value in the painting instead of the painter. No, meaning and value in life, they are found in Christ Jesus alone. So whatever the cost of obedience that joins you to Christ, let me encourage you today, pay it and pay it immediately. Maybe for you that cost will be felt today. Taking a step, making a decision to draw near to him. The second thing that I see in Joseph's story is that his pain was chosen by him, even though it was not caused by him. Joseph's involvement in the Christmas story was completely voluntary. I don't know if you ever noticed the fact, but at the point that Joseph found out about Mary's pregnancy with Jesus, she was already pregnant. Jesus was coming, whether Joseph was going to be a part of it or not. God did not consult Joseph. God did not ask Joseph's permission. But now he's asking for his participation. See, God's not going to ask your permission about all the pain points of your life. But he wants you to participate in them by trusting him. You do not get to pick all of your problems. And God will not ask your permission before putting you through a trial. Some of you right now, you've got problems in your life that you could cut ties with if you wanted to. You could, you could separate yourself from those things if you wanted to, but trusting God in that thing, and you know it in your heart of hearts, looks like staying put. It looks like being present. It looks like being faithful and participating in the problems that you did not cause for the sake of demonstrating the same love that was shown to you by the God who participated in the deathly problems of humanity that he did not cause. You see, I don't know what somebody else told you, but life with God is not free of trouble. But it is free of triviality. It's free of meaninglessness and pointlessness. And i got to press this because the great crisis of our age is a crisis of meaning. Nobody knows what anything means anymore. Words don't mean anything. Identities don't mean anything. Everything is just made up as we see it. And if you can't find meaning, you can't find life. Because where you look for meaning, make no mistake, it's where you're looking for life. It's where you're looking for fulfillment and satisfaction. So where are you finding meaning? Because every avenue of self is a dead end. Maybe you got some suffering right now that you would like to resent and just do your own thing and go your own way and make your life about you because it might be small, but at least it's safe. Maybe you got some suffering that you are resenting. Can I encourage you, friends, Jesus Christ, if being the God-man, if being the meeting place of heaven and earth, of the unseen and the seen, that means that he is the meaning effectively of all reality. And so rather than resenting your suffering and your pain, bring that suffering into Jesus Christ and let it find its meaning and purpose. The third thing that I see in Joseph's choice to stay is that it meant a wholesale change of understanding the entirety of his life. <laughs> what plans did Joseph have before this or angel interrupted his sweet sleep? What life had he envisioned with Mary? What dreams were they going to pursue? What kind of life were they going to build? All of that now 
had to submit to God's plan and like really concretely. I know we'd all like to think that our life is submitted to God's plan, but have you ever had a moment where the rubber had to meet the road? That's this kind of moment for Joseph right here. I mean, even before Jesus was born, he was messing things up. King Herod has found out about the supposed birth of the king of the Jews, and now he's got this murderous plan to kill all the children under the age of two, because that's what satanic agreements always do. They go after kids, and so he's going after kids, and so Joseph and Mary now have to flee into Egypt as refugees. Jesus isn't even out of the womb yet, and he's already messing up Joseph's life plan. Next thing he knows, he'll be knocking on doors in Bethlehem looking for a place for Mary to give birth. He'll have to settle for a barn. What an unexpected life event. You see, the story of Joseph is the story of someone who said yes to something that he could have chosen to go without. And don't make the mistake of thinking that that there wouldn't be immense cost to saying no. There's always immense cost to saying no to the incarnate Christ. But there's also cost that comes with saying yes. The difference is in the price you pay for emptiness versus the price you pay for abundant purpose. Joseph, in this one decision, is changing his whole future, and so he's saying, God, here's, here's my future. Giving God your life and your future is exactly what it means to join yourself to Jesus Christ. But it's not a sacrifice. It is salvation. And it always returns infinitely more than you gave up. Joseph was a son of David. And so the angel greeted him. Joseph, son of David. And that's a stark reminder for Joseph because that's no insignificant title to bear. I mean, David is one of Israel's most beloved ancestors, people who, in their lineage. And even more than that, David was the person through whom God had prophesied and promised he would bring Israel's Messiah. So to be a son of David, to be in that lineage, to be a part of that messianic plan was a really big deal. And Joseph, I mean, remember, he's really low on the socioeconomic ladder. So he probably doesn't have much else significant going for him. Probably the only significant thing about Joseph is that he is a son of David. And funnily enough, that ends up being the main link between Joseph and Jesus, because Jesus is the Messiah, and so he has to come to the line of David, and Joseph is the legal father of of Jesus. So, So ironically, what was really important about Joseph ended up being even more important about Jesus. Which in turn meant that it was even more important about Joseph. So long as being the son of David was about him, it was pretty cool. But man, when the son of David is about your son and he's the real son of David, well, now you being the son of David is just that much more amazing. So God is saying to David, that son of David thing, that, that's to Joseph, that son of David thing that you think is so significant about you, I want that too. Submit that as well. Yeah, that, that thing that you have kind of held back for yourself and you're holding that close to your chest because you don't want God to ask for that. He's asking for it. Right now, through the sermon, he's doing it. He's saying, give that, give that to me. And you might think that that's the giving up of honor and the laying down of something, but I can promise you that as others thought that Joseph was laying down his honor by staying with Mary, no, he was actually receiving the honor of honors by getting to be the father of 
God's own son. And this is how it goes when you give your life to God. Significance connects back to its original signal. The entity from, from whom your significance is really derived, like a branch in the vine. And then that branch begins to bear fruit. And so the seed that you sowed, as important as it seemed, comes back infinitely greater than that, that once really significant thing now is just so small compared to what God has done in my life. And that brings us to us. Because we all have our own son of David type hope and expectation. God wants us to submit that even to him. And if you leave that thing unsubmitted, here's what will happen, I can promise you. If you leave that significance of your life unsubmitted to God, that thing will end up becoming your God. It may have become your God already. And no matter how special that part of you is, it cannot be God. It will crumble under the weight of your hopes and your dreams and you will come down crumbling with it. You see, the incarnation says a lot of things to us. One of the things that the incarnation of Christ says to us is that no matter how sturdy the strengths of our lives are, at the end of the day, Jesus is pointing out that they are a shoddy and shaky foundation for our hopes of a meaningful life. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's wealth or charisma, family heritage, social status, skill set. None of it can bear the weight that an eternal soul has in hope for an eternal life. Only the foundation of foundations can bear that weight. And so we must do what, Jesus, what Joseph had to do. Become nothing in order to experience the everything that God has planned. And that can only come from laying down your life at his feet in response to him laying his life down at yours. And for him, it was a sacrifice. You see, if anybody got the raw end of the deal in the whole gospel scenario, it's not you or me. But it was a sacrifice, the Bible says, that uh, he paid joyfully. Because on the other side of that sacrifice was you, was his church. And so if us in return laying our lives down costs us anything, why would we not pay it? It's not as though I lay down my life and, and pick up some arbitrary thing that's detached from the personhood of God. No, when I lay down my life, I get God. The one who has existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all of eternity. He only knows life. The, the way that God knows joy is not like you and I know joy. It's not momentary joy. It's not occasional joy. It's not joy that spikes during the holiday season because of lights and festivities. No, the joy that God knows is joy that has no beginning and it has no end because the joy has just always been. Because God has always been. 
the life that God has is not like life that you and I know life. It's not a life of ups and downs, lefts and rights, mountains and valleys. Sure, your life in the flesh is going to still look like that. That's why Paul says, this isn't my life. My real life is lived by faith in the Son of God. He's seated in the Holy of Holies on the throne. My life is identified with him. So even in the ups and the downs and the lefts and the rights and the mountains and the valleys, while things are spinning and churning and happening, on the inside, you'd be like this. Because that's his life. It's perpetual. The peace of God isn't, it's not like you and I know peace. If you're anything like me, I mean, you can be really at peace in one moment. And it just takes one text message. Usually it sounds like, Pastor, can we talk? Not unless you tell me all the details of what you want to talk about before I agree to that text message. So we go from peace to anxiousness. God doesn't know that. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has everything he needs in himself. There's no lack there. And, and that's for you. How do I know that? Because the Bible says in, um, in Ephesians chapter 1 that because of the gospel, because God became a man, joined himself to us, making it possible for us to join ourselves to him. Because of that, you and I have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In the heavenly place is the heavenly person. He is for you, and he's calling you to draw near to him. You've been listening to the C3 Los Angeles podcast. If you found today's message helpful, we encourage you to share it with a friend and consider rating it. If you'd like more information about our church or details on how to get connected to a neighborhood group, head to c3losangeles.com. We love you. Thanks for tuning in with us.